Doug Storm. This is Interchange. Our show today is Undermining Zinktown, and the 1954 film Salt of the Earth is our subject. We're listening to the opening of the film's score composed by Saul Kaplan, blacklisted in the 1950s for being uncooperative to HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee. For the rest of our music, we'll feature the work of other blacklisted artists and performers, Hazel Scott, Yip Harburg, Mark Blitzstein, and Lena Horne. Salt of the Earth is based on an actual strike in 1951 against the Empire Zinc Mine in New Mexico. The film deals with the prejudice against the Mexican-American workers, who struck to attain wage parity with Anglo workers in other mines, and to be treated with dignity by the bosses. This film was directed by Herbert Bieberman, one of the original Hollywood Ten, who was blacklisted due to alleged involvement in communist politics and for refusing to answer congressional inquiries on First Amendment grounds. The film's writer and producer, Michael Wilson and Paul Jericho, had also been blacklisted. Our guest today is frequent interchange guest and contributor, Joan Hawkins. Joan is an associate professor of cinema and media studies at the IU Media School and a member of the Writers Guild at Bloomington and the Burroughs Century. Yes, you'll cry, but you'll laugh more when the women land in jail and the men land in the washtub. At last! A film in which women emerge as the heroic equals of men. And men learn about sex equality the hard way. Time magazine says, salt of the earth crowded with grindingly effective scenes. The New York Times, raw emotion and power. The San Francisco Chronicle, it pulsates with a feeling of actuality. From coast to coast, the critics rave. One of the most dramatic and entertaining films of all time. You'll laugh and cheer. You'll thrill with pride. Your kids will love it. See Salt of the Earth. You'll never forget it. Salt of the Earth. This is one of the first pictures to advance the feminist, social, and political point of view. In many ways, it seems ahead of its time in these terms, until we remember that feminism in the U.S. might be said to predate even the 1848 Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls, as its history is tied to Native American rights and abolitionism. Because Salt of the Earth was produced in response to the course of U.S. culture and politics both pre- and post-World War II, We'll begin with a look at the U.S. as its discourse and instructions to the public imaginary comes out of the so-called Red Scare and eventuates in the disgraceful period presided over by HUAC and the likes of opportunist politicians Richard Nixon and Senator Joseph McCarthy. You know, if you look at the DVD, if you well, if you look at almost anything about the film, it talks about it being the only blacklisted American film. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that the film itself was blacklisted, but certainly it grew out of the blacklist, and it it participates in that culture and that politics, the politics of that era. So for people who don't know, 
about the blacklist. Mm -hmm. The House Un-American Activities Committee was formed in 1938, and when it was initially formed, it was the idea was that they were going to be ferreting out subversion. But even in the very early days of it, subvert, that was like code mm-hmm. for labor politics. Because mm-hmm. this was, you know, the height of the Depression. Things were starting to get, you know, from 29 to 38, people were getting tired of standing in bread lines. Right. There was a, a significant rise of membership in the American Communist Party. Right. There was a rise in socialist activity. And all of that was because capitalism was being perceived correctly as a failed and broken system. <laughs> right. right. It's pretty obvious at that yeah. time. Yeah. And and the organized labor that was happening at that time in the 30s, they were very closely linked to the Communist Party, not even so much even while there was a rise in membership in the American Communist Party. So there was a rise Mm. in ideological attraction to communism. There also was a way in which the American Communist Party always put its money where its mouth was. So they helped organize labor unions. Mm -hmm. So even labor unions that didn't consider themselves particularly communist or particularly socialist-leaning were very happy to accept help about how do you organize a strike, how do you train Uh, you know, a smelter Mm -hmm. to get up and stand up and talk in front of a whole bunch of people. How do you do those things? Mm -hmm. And so they sent people to to organizing camps that were sponsored by the American Communist Party. Uh, It was sort of difficult to be involved in labor in the late 30s, early 40s without having some without having at some point in your life gone to a meeting where there was a significant communist presence or where the American Communist Party wasn't, in fact, uh, sponsoring the meeting. And we only know this history, or we know this history mainly through culturally prestigious organizations. So, like, I know it through the Hollywood Ten, I know it through the theater, I know it through, you know, the famous people who were blacklisted and had to go someplace. But, you know, Carl Bernstein from Woodward and Bernstein, he wrote, uh, I think it was just his autobiography a few years ago came out. And his father, who was an attorney, worked a lot with, uh, he did pro bono work for people who had been called up by HUAC or who had been targeted in this, even if you weren't called up by HUAC, you know, targeted by this sort of red scare ring that was taking place. And the thing that I found amazing when I read this book is Carl Bernstein was writing that as a kid, mm-hmm. he was seeing like people coming to, you know, his parents' apartment after dinner every night. And these were not culturally prestigious people. These were like cafeteria workers. These were waitresses, janitors, people who had the temerity to try to organize within their buildings for some better working conditions or for payment for overtime or something. And they were fired under this guise of being a communist Mm -hmm. or would find themselves slapped with expensive lawsuits. So the way in which this notion of a communist scare and subversion and sedition got mapped onto the labor movement, that happened like right at the very beginning. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is about the 1954 film Salt of the Earth, a classic about a labor strike that finds its center in feminism. It comes to us from the era of HUAC, 
red baiting, and the blacklisting of artists and performers for any supposed affiliation with communism. The first cultural organizations that were targeted were the theater, where you started having, again, in the 30s, part of the WPA resulted in very uh, socially aware and socially provocative dramas, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Waiting for Lefty, things mm -hmm, like that, sure. uh, that were being done as part of getting America working again. Right. And... And it was scary to people once this stuff started coming out. And so the, I can't remember the name of the theater group, but the very first cultural organization that was targeted by HUAC was a theater group saying, mm -hmm. you know, you guys are putting out propaganda. Mm -hmm. And then they began turning their attention to Hollywood. And when we talk about Hollywood at this point, the stuff they're looking at is like film noir. This is not right, like right. salt of the earth that they're looking <laughs> right, at. This right. is, you know, like stuff where you have to do some pretty serious um you know, like parsing yeah, in order yeah. to try to find a socialist right. movement or but socialist message. at this time, message. too, isn't there as much uh, – there's a, a, a bleed into general um, problems with, as you said already, subversion means sexual subversion. Subversion yes. is racism yeah. as well. Yeah. So, you know, all the things yeah. that are happening by the late 40s, yeah. you know, has to do with uh, homosexuality as well, yeah. right? So yeah. all these things are sort of yeah. whoever's in charge, and if we can yeah. stick it on one in, one in particular person at the time, which is a ridiculous. Yeah. Obviously, we know that Nixon yeah. was involved in these things as well. You don't need to mention yeah. J. Edgar Hoover to, yeah. to just pin it on Hoover. You know, right. this, this is what was happening throughout the government at the time. Right. And, well, interesting that you mentioned homosexuality because the HUAC, when HUAC was really going and McCarthy was at his abominable height, mm -hmm. they had this subgroup that they even called like the Lavender subgroup, where it was clear that that was what they were going after. Right, they were going right. to target homosexuals and okay. communists. With Roy Cohn, of all right, people, right. you know, leading the charge. What a... Anyway, Roy Cohn. Yeah. Well, but so this film grew out of the blacklist in that the director was one of the Hollywood ten. So Hollywood began policing, as it has done so often in the past, out of fear that the United States government would start enacting actual censorship on them, they began policing themselves. Mm -hmm. And so they began looking for people who seemed to have communist sympathies or had any affiliation with communists, and they... Uh, curtailed how much work they could do. Right. Um, and the first group of people who were called up before HUAC, the Hollywood Ten, was a group of ten directors who all were deemed to have some kind of communist leanings. The trial, so that the trial happened in 47, it dragged on for a while. They all refused to testify. Mm -hmm. The idea was that you were supposed to come, you were supposed to give yourself up and do self-critique and you were supposed to name names. Mm -hmm. And that was the sticking point for many people is that people would often incriminate themselves, but they wouldn't name names. So in 1950, most of the Hollywood 10 went to jail for a year out of contempt of court because they wouldn't give up their their colleagues. Um, out of that group, so of the group that worked on this film, uh, Herbert Bieberman was one of the Hollywood Ten. There was a producer, Paul Jericho. Uh, there was a writer, Michael Wilson. There was one of the stars of the film, Will Greer. All of them had been blacklisted as part of this, we're going to police ourselves movement, so we're going to ensure that if if you look like you're a communist, you won't work in the industry. You won't work above board. Um, there was this 
practice that in Woody Allen's film The Front, you see it described very overtly, where blacklisted writers would ghostwrite scripts. And that was how they kept getting money. Some people went to England. Some people did any number of different things. Anyway, so this film, which was going to have direct political content, because it was going to be about a 15-month strike, a a strike that was successful Mm -hmm. at a zinc mine in New Mexico. It was uh, written, directed, produced by people who had been blacklisted. And Bieberman had had this idea that he wanted to start a production company, the independent production company that would provide work for blacklisted filmmakers. And that he wanted to do specifically political stuff. Mm -hmm. And as he put it, he wanted to tell stories, let working class men and women tell their stories. Mm -hmm. So so he started the production company. Uh, They picked this film as their first film. And because it was about a successful strike, the union that represented that mine, the International Union of Mine Mill and Smelter Workers, Local 890, mm-hmm. they, they <laughs> co-sponsored the film. And so by now you can just see like McCarthy land is, yeah, <laughs> is yeah. going oh crazy, yeah. right? The president of that local is the guy who plays the romantic lead in this film. Oh. He's Ramon. <laughs> yes. I didn't know that. Yes. Mm. Um, which is why he looks his most believable. He looks so uncomfortable in the kitchen, and he looks so believable when he's out there. We cannot let them arrest our women. <laughs> yeah. I went down to that St. James Infirmary And I saw some plasma there I upped and asked the doctor man Now was the donor dark affair It's time for a break. This is Free and Equal Blues, performed by Josh White, written by Yip Harburg. Harburg was an American popular song lyricist who wrote the lyrics to Brother Can You Spare a Dime, as well as all the songs in The Wizard of Oz. Though not a communist, he was a member of the Socialist Party and was named as un-American in a pamphlet called Red Channels, the report of communist influence in radio and television, and subsequently blocked from working in Hollywood films, television and radio for 12 years from 1950 to 1962 more with Joan Hawkins on the 1954 film Salt of the Earth when interchange returns black man yellow man red that's just what that doctor said so he put down his doctor book and he gave me a very scientific look and he spoke out plain and clear and rational he says metabolism is international and that was news yes that was news that was very, very, very special news Cause ever since that day we've had those free and equal blues Then he rigged up his microscope with some royal blue blood It was the same as Chung Kang, Chef, Chattanooga, Timbuktu blood Those men who think they're noble, the core puzzle is global And disunited with the racial supremacy Flying in the face of old man chemistry And taking all the facts and trying to twist them but you can't overthrow the circulatory system And that was news Yes, that was news That was very, very, very special news Cause ever since that day We've had those free and equal blues So I stayed at that St. James Infirmary <laughs> I couldn't leave that place, it was too interesting 
So I said to the doc, give me some more of that scientific talk talk, and he did. He says, melt yourself down into a crucible and pour yourself out into a test tube, and what have you got? 3,500 cubic feet of gas, that's the same for the upper and lower class. Well, I let that pass. Carbon, 22 pounds, 10 ounces. You mean that goes for princes, dukes, and counts? That's what the mounts is. Carbon, 22 pounds, 10 ounces. Iron, 57 grains. Not enough to keep a man in chains. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is about the 1954 film Salt of the Earth. Our guest is Joan Hawkins associate professor of cinema and media studies at Indiana University. We set the stage in segment one, discussing HUAC and the blacklisting of artists like Salt of the Earth director Herbert Bieberman, one of the Hollywood Ten. In this segment, we hear about the influence of the film and consider it as a kind of starting point for the activism and revolutionary spirit of the long decade of the 1960s in the United States. And that was news, yes that was news. So listen, you African and Indian, Mexican, Mongolian, Tyrolean, and Tartar. So um, even though the film wasn't shown a lot, in the, well, it wasn't shown in the United States after it was first released for 10 years, it wasn't shown. It did get a lot of play in Europe. And I, in fact, saw the film for the first time when I was in Europe in the early 1970s. And I saw it at, you know, some rock club where they had this... It was this, you know, underground American movie that was being shown, and um, and I I went with a bunch of American friends who had also never seen the film, and we were just blown away. Mm-hmm. And it was particularly interesting to see it within that context, but with a bunch of Swedes mm-hmm. who were not used to the idea of an American film having such direct. Um, sort of labor, race, sex and gender politics going on, especially from that time period. How shall I begin my story that has no beginning? In these arroyos, my great-grandfather raised cattle before the Anglos ever came. Our roots go deep in this place, deeper than the pines, deeper than the mine shafts. This is my village. When I was a child, it was called San Marcos. The Anglos changed the name to Zinktown. Zinktown, New Mexico, USA. This is our home. The house is not ours, but the flowers, the flowers are ours. My name is Esperanza, Esperanza Quintero. They went to New Mexico, they shot on location at this kind of mining town. Mm -hmm. And there was so much press coverage about the fact that this was happening at all and so much in this kind of panic fashion. So this anti-communist, it, the idea that this was a, com- a communist propaganda film is being made right here in the heart of the right. United States in New Mexico. And so there was a huge backlash. The um, the town where everybody was living was, a, you know, there were was several acts of violence, including the, the house where I think Will Greer was living mm. was firebombed. And there was an attempt, the uh, lead actress, Rosara Revueltas, was uh, deported. <laughs> yeah. 
And because of the close links of Mexico with the United States, when she was deported to Mexico, mm -hmm. so they were using a body double for her in the last half of the film. Oh, okay. um, when she was deported to Mexico, me the Mexican film industry blacklisted her. She was one of the few oh professional gosh. actors in the movie, and so she didn't work again after this movie. Oh, I know. Okay. <laughs> so, oh. uh, okay. So, um, so the film is called a blacklisted film because it, it grew out of the blacklist. Mm -hmm. And then once it was released in 1954, it uh, it didn't get very good reviews, and. And because of the over-political content, it was it was like a hot potato. Mm -hmm. So it was only mm -hmm. it opened in one one theater in New York. It only played in twelve theaters before it was just sort of withdrawn mm -hmm. from uh, distribution, and it it stayed withdrawn for about ten years. It didn't come back out again until the early sixties, sixty three, sixty four. Mm, well, I saw that uh, that it was Pauline Kael who. Yeah. commented on oh. its propagandist. Yes, she hated it. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, it, uh, I've never been a, gr a great fan of Pauline Kael in the well, probably because of what she, how she dealt with Citizen Kane, probably. But yeah. that um, this was enough for me to discover and then say, well, I didn't need to ever pay attention to Pauline <laughs> Kael. This this helped me to justify my decision to turn my back on Pauline Kael. So. <laughs> I know. Well, she was. Yeah, she didn't like it. And you know, we were talking a little bit before before we started um, mm -hmm. taping about the fact that as as films go, it's not... I wouldn't make an argument for this being great cinematic mm -hmm. art, but it certainly is a compelling story, and as a cultural document, it's really fascinating. Yeah. And in John Sayles' movie, The Secaucus 7, mm -hmm. the characters talk about this film. Oh, really? Like, this was mm -hmm. a touchstone for a lot of people... Uh, who became activists in the 60s because once it was re-released, mm. it wasn't like re-released theatrically. It wasn't it wasn't brought back in some kind of like, and now the great underground classic. Right. You know, you saw it in like church basements or there was some organization or some radical history mm. teacher who would show it to you. And so people had this idea had this feeling when they found it of having stumbled onto something mm -hmm. and it spoke mm -hmm. to them in that way. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is about the 1954 film Salt of the Earth, a classic about a labor strike that finds its center in feminism. It comes to us from the era of HUAC, red baiting and the blacklisting of artists and performers for any supposed affiliation with communism. I should also say, so... The House on American Activities Committee is formed in 1938. The Hollywood Ten was 47. Joseph McCarthy became the chief fulminator in 1950, and that lasted until 54. And it was under him that it became truly a lunatic thing, where he was the one who was standing there saying, you know, I have here a list of 57 people who right. are communists right. or in the State Department. Right. Like a blank page. Yeah, and where we <laughs> had like of, these... His grocery list <laughs> with names on it. Mm -hmm. and we, where we had these show trials of mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. coming up in front of HUAC. And he ran 
kind of unchecked until 1954 when he went after the army. And mm-hmm. it was only when he went after the army that he was finally... The real power in the country, yeah. right? When he was... Yeah, and that yeah. was when people right. finally... When the sen- the the Senate or the House cens- cens- censured mm-hmm. him, mm-hmm. finally. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the committee itself, HUAC, <clears throat> didn't disband until 1975. Yeah, it lasted a long time. <clears throat> so yeah. it lasted quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And it was in... Ninth- one of the people give different sort of starting points for the beginning of the 60s, where the, say, the civil rights activities of the late 50s actually kick into the political activism of the 60s. Right. But one of the ep- one of the events that people point to are the HUAC hearings in San Francisco. Mm. So HUAC was going to have hearings at City Hall in San Francisco. Students from UC Berkeley, from Stanford, from City College, all converged on City Hall to protest. Mm-hmm. And the police opened fire hoses on them. And there was this was before there was uh, a lot of censorship of the news. So we saw white students mm-hmm. being fire hosed on the steps of City Hall. Mm-hmm. And this became really an activating, an activating power point, I guess, mm-hmm. for six for the sixties movements, mm-hmm. where people it started out as on the white side. It started out as an anti nuclear, anti war movement, anti HUAC movement. Mm-hmm. Then people got involved with SNCC and then of course we kicked over into anti Vietnam war right, politics. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is taking us kind of far away from Salt of the Earth, but Salt of the Earth is all about <laughs> Well, it's labor pretty movement. fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating <laughs> that it happens in this period. We talked to the the idea that this is, again, an early film, right? Yeah. That, it, that it is coming out of the, the uh, out of World War II, um, out of, as you say, the, at the end of the Depression happens generally because we go to war. Right. Uh, you know, you get some, right. some war dollars coming and the, the economy kicks into to that. Uh, world and then uh, in a in a sense we begin to to crush the movement that was communist or socialist even you know the war ends that kind of energy yeah. uh, and this does I guess in some sense I hope give you the idea that we could continue post-war right and that yeah. that is what happens you know you have a, a kickback again of uh, against war in the first place it it takes us through uh, all the way as you say, to the 60s, through the 60s, into Vietnam protests as well, into civil rights. So obviously this is a, just an amazing time period. And it's, it's, it's really a, an amazing thing to, to say, this is 1954. Yeah. You know, we don't say this is the 60s. We're, right. you know, and as you say, we're, with 60s maybe started in 1954. You know, you, yeah. you have this idea that how early this is and how, yeah. um, how pertinent it is, how it's probably status quo in many ways right like it's part of like how we understand this country is that i can see a film in 19 that's from 1954 and think it's prescient when yet it's probably simply giving us history lessons right it's simply saying this is way the way it's kind of been for most of these particular groups of people for a long time the most interesting thing to me about the film isn't that it's communistic it's that it's white versus brown yeah you know, yeah. that it's first white versus brown. It is labor versus management, but that's white versus brown yeah. also. You know, yeah. and the other big thing that we'll get to, obviously, is uh, not man versus woman, although that's in there, but it's gentler, I suppose. Yeah. But it's it's a gender movie as well, or a, yeah. a sex movie, you know, yeah. as, uh, that we'll talk about. So white versus brown yeah. is very, very 
obvious uh, uh, in the film, but you know, well, this is a way, key issue. And the way that the labor issues get mapped onto that. So yes, you do see these wealthy guys sitting in their cars mm-hmm. watching the people on the street. With their hat line. and their fedoras and their, cigar- <laughs> and their cigarettes. <laughs> I will call New York <laughs> and tell them we must settle. <laughs> it's great. These for now. Right. For at now. The, the present. Right. I'll talk to New York. I think maybe we'd better settle this thing. Story? For the present. Is that what your papers want? It's time for another break. We'll hear Joe Worker from the 1937 play in music The Cradle Will Rock by Mark Blitzstein. It's performed by Mickey Grant. In 1958, Blitzstein, who was openly gay, appeared before HUAC under subpoena. In a closed session, Blitzstein admitted his membership in the Communist Party, which he ended in 1949, but refused to name names or cooperate any further. More on the realization that labor is exploitative under capitalism in the mines or in the home. Stay with us. Joe Worker gets chipped For no good reason, just chipped From the start until the finish comes They feed him out of garbage cans They breed him in the slums Joe Worker will go Shops where stuff is on show He'll look at the meat He'll look at the bread And too little to eat Sort of goes to the head One big question inside me cries How many fakers Peace undertakers Paid strike breakers How many toiling Dying, piled up bodies Brother, does it take to make you rise? Your worker just drops right at his... Welcome back, I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Joan Hawkins is my guest and we're discussing the underground classic Salt of the Earth from 1954, directed by Herbert J. Bieberman one of the blacklisted Hollywood 10. In this segment, the wages of whiteness are on display as poor working conditions, a capitalist constant, are always just enough better for the Anglos to feel superior to the Mexican-Americans. Oh, it takes a lot of Joes to make a sound you can hear. One big question inside me cries. How many frame-ups, how many shakedowns, lockouts, sellouts? How many times machine guns tell the same old story? Brother, does it take to make you wise? So the central issue, the inaugurating issue for the men, mm-hmm. is mine safety. Right. And, but the thing that is introduced right at the beginning, as soon as they're talking about mine safety, is that the white mines, the mines where there are white workers, they work in pairs. Mm-hmm. And so some of these terrible things that are happening to us don't happen to them because there is somebody who is watching, who can monitor the fuse, who can do these things. And we go down there, we're alone, and we're in the, just this, you know, accident waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. And that is 
that is brought up over and over and over again. For the women, so you get this um, duality. The, the men are talking about their worker safety mm-hmm. and the mine accidents. The union steward, I guess, he's like the, the head of the union who's a representative there, who's living with them. Mm-hmm. He's white. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of white miners who seem to be with them, but it's predominantly a Mexican, Mexican-American community. Mm-hmm. The women are making the similar st- the similar kinds of complaints about their housing situation. They're saying, you know, in the towns, in the white mining towns, there's hot running water in the houses. There is sanitation. They don't live in these yeah. kinds of conditions. Primarily sanitation is the, yeah. is the key point. Uh, for, again, for the domestic point, but it right. is ev- all of our... <laughs> Well, that's a point yes, for all of us exactly. that we have clean water that yeah. that we don't struggle to 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 wash anything. You know, they've got yeah. uh, pipes that bring water in uh, at that camp, and they don't have to heat their water on the know, on the stove. It's just amazing. Or, They're talking about chopping wood yeah, to yeah, heat the water. Listen, we ought to be in a wood choppers union. Chop wood for breakfast. Chop wood washes clothes. Chop wood heat the iron. Chop wood scrub floors. Chop wood cook his dinner. And do you know what he will say when he comes home? What have you been doing all day? Reading funny papers? On both sides of the gendered argument, mm-hmm. so the the domestic versus the corporate mm-hmm. get at times are in opposition to one another in the movie. But the thing that is a consistent through line is that the the gringos have it much better. The right. Anglos have it much better. Yeah. And and the racism throughout the film is very subtle and very real. I mean, mm-hmm. not only do you have white people just saying horrible things about brown-skinned people, but the fact that everybody gets called poncho. How did this happen? They wandered into a drift when that fellow was blasted. I told you it would happen. It's bound to happen when a man works alone. Why did you give the man a warning signal? Your foreman says that's a foreman's job. Well, I checked the drift just before he blasted. It was all clear. The man must have been asleep or something. You weren't even there. You were back at the station. Kalinsky told me. You're a liar, Pancho. A no good, dirty... <laughs> Get a hold on yourself. The man's been hurt. I'm as sorry about it as you are, Savvy. You know what else that happens, and it's pretty striking, is that they say a word that I never really had heard before outside of Moby Dick, where I, <laughs> all my friends will laugh at this, that I mention Moby Dick in nearly every program, I think. But uh, at one point, uh, when uh, Ishmael's meeting Queequeg at the first time, uh, the inn owner asks, tells Queequeg uh, something, and he's, at the end he says, Savvy. Yes, he and says it to, to you, yeah. me, savvy you, you savvy me. You know, yeah. you, do you understand me, right? <laughs> yeah. And this is used constantly throughout. Yeah. The white person always asking the the Mexican yeah. savvy, yeah. you know, which is you're a barbarian savage, and I have to ask you in this terminology if yeah. you understand what I'm saying to you. I know it's just, uh, and the um, and of course within the movie the the corporate power. Because they're living in in company towns, mm-hmm. and so they're working for the mine. They're buying the, they're buying everything they need from the company store. They're living in company provided housing, which again fuels part of the mm-hmm. you know dissatisfaction. 
but that also shows how hard it is when they are trying to have their strike. What a stranglehold the company has on them because, right. you know, they don't get credit at the store anymore, so they can't buy food. Right. And then there's that scene where the company is going to start evicting them right. from the right. housing. Yeah, so the, the, the key issue right out of the gate, I mean, you already pointed out, one is minor safety. Two yeah. is the color line is obvious that yeah. uh, it's still, you can imagine mining safety not being that big a deal in the white camp either, but just enough better probably that, that it's clear that you're right. getting a benefit over the, the brown skins over right. there, right? So. Well, and they and that's one of the interesting things to me in the film is that that is stated sort of explicitly twice, mm. that part of the reason they, I think it is the white union leader who says to, um, to Ramon and the other people, is the reason they can't give you better living conditions is that this is the way they keep white workers in their place. Yeah, it's, it's explicit in the film. Yeah, yeah which is, that's Du Bois's, yeah. uh, you know, color line. Um, exactly. The burden of white, or the, you know, the, the deal you make as a, as a white person is that you're not as bad off as right. any black or brown person in this country. Right. Yeah, at least you have pipes yeah. coming into right. your house. <laughs> <laughs> Now you can understand. I mean, it's a, it yeah. was it's been a very very successful yeah. strategy. Yeah. Or if that's a tactic, I don't know my military yeah. terms, but it's been yeah, very no. successful. Absolutely. Yeah. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is about the 1954 film Salt of the Earth, a classic about a labor strike that finds its center in feminism. It comes to us from the era of HUAC, red baiting and the blacklisting of artists and performers for any supposed affiliation with communism. So we have minor safety. We have uh, the difference between white and brown yeah. workers in different camps. We also, as you say, immediately have um, the narrator of the film. We should point that out, right? The narrator yeah. is Esperanza, namely yeah. Hope. Um, yes. uh, Esperanza narrates the film, and we find out immediately from Esperanza that she's very dissatisfied, too, as a woman yeah. who can't have decent sanitation and water right. the domestic aspect of the film which shouldn't be tied to her and the film actually undoes as well or switches mm -hmm. around the idea of domesticity and and being a laborer right. uh the film plays with very i think effectively right, right. um as well so uh we have our, our we're set up pretty quickly in the film yeah. with those those particular things and it plays between different forms of alienated labor mm -hmm. i think mm -hmm. because one of the things we find out like at the beginning she is i mean she's exhausted mm -hmm. and she's exhausted from this housework and taking care of the children and, and she's pregnant I and think. she's pregnant right, right. and mm -hmm. she has the only thing she has that's of any that gives her any pleasure is this radio the that radio, her husband right. is so upset about. Ramon, I don't like to bother you, but the store lady said that uh, if we don't make another payment on the radio this month, they'll come and take it away. We are only one payment behind. I argued with her. It isn't right. It isn't right, she says. Was it right that we bought this? This instrument? But you had to have it, didn't you? It was so nice to listen to. I listened to it. Every night, when you're out at the beer parlor. No money down. Easy turn payment. I tell you something. 
This installment plan, it's a curse of the working man. He has, I mean, he has his own alienated labor in the mind, but he has a certain relationship with his brothers in the union, and he's going to these meetings, and there is this sense of political engagement. And a kind of collective family response there right. as well, right? Exactly. And that's why you say brother. Yeah. Yeah, it's important. She does yeah. not... The radio right. is her engagement. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and later on in the film... Um, when the women, interestingly enough, become like the focus of both the, the progression of the strike mm -hmm. and also uh, become a kind of revolutionary force within their homes, mm -hmm. um, she is not so tired anymore, mm -hmm. even though she's doing like double duty now because, it's you know. Energized by the activity. Yeah, you know, she's coming home. She's been in jail for four days. She comes home. She picks up the baby and she said, and, you know, and he's like, well, we have to talk. And she says, yeah, but the women are coming over for a meeting. <laughs> she's got a life with meaning <laughs> energy, right? I'll, I'll talk to you later. That's, <laughs> that's also perfect. The film walks us through various um, stages of protest and yeah. strike, right? So yeah. uh, the fact that the men do not want the women involved, we go through that. They talk, uh, they go to the, yeah. the union meeting and the women come and they say, we want things yeah. and um, they're pretty much shut down. And then the women yell at their their partners, their husbands, yeah. why didn't you support me? And then all, you know, that's the point where things start to turn, yeah. where the women are in charge of this particular situation yeah. and the men begin to be domesticized in, in yeah. the film where they they do laundry they take care of the kids um and the women won't have it when they say i don't want to do that they say well i'll t you know i don't want to walk watch the kids anymore this is something i don't want to do ramon says she says well i'll take the kids with me to the to picket yeah you know i i don't care if you don't want to do that you know we're going to do what we need to do yeah. uh, it's i loved it to be honest yeah. with you and it does hit on all those yeah. things that it's we we dismiss frequently here and yeah. that we still struggle against, right? Yeah. That we still have in this, this country these yeah. same problems. There's yeah. nothing different today and it's plausibly worse today yeah. than it was then. Yeah. There's, there are scenes where the women in jail with their children, yeah. you know, again, white yeah. uh, jailers just staring at them and saying, just do what we tell you and you can get out of jail with yeah. your kid. Yeah. You know, and we've seen pictures today, yesterday, the day yeah. before of kids in, yeah. you know, in, in prison. Yeah. Um, this is our country still. Yeah. And here's a film in 1954 that's showing it to us. Yeah. Right? And yeah. this is no different today. Yeah. And even the capitalist yeah. idea of, of, you know, again, it starts out saying, this is my land. This is where I was born. This right. is this is actually has a name I've forgotten, sadly, because it's easy to remember Zinc Town, but it's not, <laughs> not easy to remember the name of the town. <laughs> so, but it starts out immediately saying, and it's I think it's key that that happens, that towns are renamed right. and taken away from the people who live there, who grew up there, whose, whose right. land it is. It's time for our final break. This is Hazel Scott with Get Up From There, off of the 1955 album Hazel Scott, Relaxed Piano Moods. Hazel Scott was a Trinidadian-born jazz and classical pianist who, in 1950, became the first black person to have a TV show, The Hazel Scott Show. After testifying before the House Un-American Activities Committee, Scott subsequently moved to Paris in the late 1950s and performed in France, not returning to the United States until 1967. When we return, the women prevail. Stay with us. Mm -hmm. 
Welcome back to Interchange. Joan Hawkins is our guest. For this final segment about the 1954 film Salt of the Earth, we'll discuss the post-World War II return to male supremacy and the way the film strikes a blow against the era's gender hegemony. Brother Sherman, if we give up now, if we obey this rotten tap heartily, we are fools and cowards. There is only one way. Fight them. Fight them all. Come on. We don't gain nothing. They'll arrest us. Que nos arresten. Es todo lo que les preocupa. No se dan cuenta que están arrestando a nuestra unión. Que nos vamos a esconder tras de las naguas de nuestras mujeres. The men quarreled. They made brave speeches. It seemed that Brother Barnes was right. The company had them coming and going. It seemed the strike was lost. Brother Chairman, if you read the court injunction carefully, you will see that the only prohibits striking minors from picketing. We women are not striking minors. We will take over your picket line. Don't laugh. We have a solution, you have none. Brother Quintero was right when he said we'll lose 50 years of gains. He will lose this strike. Your wives and children too. But this we promise. If women take your places on the picket line, the strike will not be broken and no scabs will take your jobs. Everything hinges on, or so much hinges on, the fact that women are invisible. Mm -hmm. So the initial injunction is the mining company says, if you don't go back to work, this is going to happen to you. And so the men are having this meeting saying, you know, what do we do, what do we do, what do we do? And one of the women stands up and says, well, you know, they say that the miners can't pick it doesn't say anything about anybody else picketing. And it's because, of course, the mining company, it had never occurred to the mining company that perhaps the women would start picketing. Oh, man, this is a great film to watch. Everybody should watch this film. It should run over and over again. You know what I was going to (laughs) say when you were talking about how it was kind of an underground film in in universities or churches and things like that? You know what I remember from from going to, to school in the great, great, uh, amazing freedom of speech loving thing was in my school at the time for a film was to show Debbie Does Dallas on campus. <laughs> right. there, there, there's, there's protest and outrage. I want to see a sex film in public. <laughs> oh, and here we have it. Yeah. Oh, here we are now. Yeah. Yeah. But it, and I mean, for me watching, rewatching this film mm-hmm. uh, now, I mean, it was very heartrending impression because we every night on the news we're seeing these horrible images of mm-hmm. you know families being torn apart and the same kinds of issues about the, Uni- the United States's relationship with Mexico mm-hmm. That we invited people here because we wanted cheap labor, yep. and now we're treating people who who want to come to better their lives or to flee violence. Mm-hmm. We're treating them as criminals, and the the horror show of separating families is just it is a horror show. Right it now. is a horror show. Yep. So the the gender stuff in the mm-hmm. film mm-hmm. is. It's very ahead of its time. Yeah, I mean, this was yeah. 50, This they started production in 53. This is when people were really being, women were being 
told to go back home. Mm-hmm. So during World After War, the war yeah, 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 during mm-hmm. World War II, we had the whole Rosie the Riveter mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. where women were going into factories, women were working, taking the jobs that men had held to keep the society right. going. Replacement labor. Exactly. Right. And then... And then there is this moment of having to re reset mm-hmm. hegemony, gender mm-hmm. hegemony, because we kept the we kept we yeah, kept the right. country going right. while men of childbearing age were elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But that's not what was supposed to happen, right? <laughs> Women aren't supposed to be able to do right, that, right. and so there had to be this way in which okay. We're going to forget about that part of it. Women are going to be happy to go back home now, and they're going to be acting like June Cleaver. <laughs> That's yes. And <laughs> my yeah, acting like June Cleaver. Mm-hmm. And so this was a time when women, especially middle class, and I should I should back up too. So we mm-hmm. we have an image of what the fifties were like, given to us largely through television, through television which yeah. is that all everybody, all women, mm-hmm. were June Cleaver. But there always were working class yeah. women, yeah. who um, my mom being one of them, and I remember vividly when I was a kid, like I would be there watching Leave It to Beaver, and my mother would walk through the living room and she would sit and she would she would turn around, she would look at the TV for a few minutes and she would look at me and she would say, you know, it's all well and good for that woman to be flipping pancakes for her family and high heels and pearls at six in the morning, but you get an education so you don't have to work like I did. Because that dude could have, well, she didn't say dude, <laughs> that man could have a heart attack and she could have to go to work. Yeah. Um, She's just going to find another man, Joan. <laughs> <laughs> My mother didn't have that mapped ah, out okay, for me. Okay, <laughs> I was okay. like, you get a job. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is about the 1954 film Salt of the Earth, a classic about a labor strike that finds its center in feminism. It comes to us from the era of HUAC, red baiting and the blacklisting of artists and performers for any supposed affiliation with communism. Whenever we cook inside, Mom always says to cook it. But whenever we cook outside, you always do it. How come? Well, it's sort of traditional, I guess. Uh, you know, they say a woman's place is in the home, and uh, I suppose as long as she's in the home, she might as well be in the kitchen. Oh. Well, that explains about Mom. But how come you always do the outside cooking? Well, I'll tell you, son. Uh, women do all right when they have all the modern conveniences. But us men are better at this uh, rugged type of outdoor cooking. Sort of a throwback to caveman days. Hand me those asbestos gloves, would you, Molly? At this time period, for this film to be coming out where the women are talking about domestic issues, they're demanding that the men put domestic issues on the list of demands that the union right. is asking for. The men are saying, we have to wait, we have to wait. And the women are saying, we're always waiting. Right. We're tired right. of waiting. Right. Um, so that starts this whole thing, but then as the women become involved in the strike, um, in the in the carrying out of the strike, mm-hmm. so and that in itself is interesting. The first thing that happens, so we're told in the film that initially when the men are on strike and they're walking the picket line, the women aren't coming at all. Mm-hmm. 
And then a woman whose husband was killed in the mine comes and starts just sort of, it's like a vigil that she's holding. Mm -hmm. So she's standing and knitting. Then pretty soon she starts walking with the men. Mm -hmm. When that happens, and they accept that. And once that happens, then the other women start coming and they're making coffee and they're bringing lunch and they're just doing this sort of women's auxiliary stuff. And then the rules come out about how if if the male miners walk the picket line, they will... Mm-hmm, lose mm-hmm. their jobs. So in either either they continue to walk the picket line, in which case we fire them, or they don't continue to walk the picket line, but in either case the strike gets broken. So the women say, well, listen, it doesn't say we can't walk. And so then the women become politically active. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's a steady progression. And at each step of the way, we see through this central couple, through Esperanza and Ramon, this negotiation, because he never wants her to do these things. He doesn't want her to speak in public. He doesn't want her to make coffee. He doesn't want her to do anything. And every time there's a movement forward, he has to kind of give up a little of his power. Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, it's nice. It's a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's not, like I don't know how to critique a movie yeah. like this. Like I don't need to critique it uh, aesthetically, simply because I don't. I don't care about it aesthetically. The actual aesthetics of it remind me a great deal of what we saw in TV drama mm-hmm, of the nineteen mm-hmm. fifties. Yeah. So it would have a certain, especially for a nineteen fifties audience, it would have a totally. certain niche. Yep. But in, as I said before, in terms of like a cultural document, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And the way that it makes the links, there's this great moment in the film where the Ramon and Esperanza finally have their big argument mm-hmm. so she's the women have gone to jail mm-hmm. they were arrested and they've gone to jail and they come back out of jail and he's saying you know this can't go on and she essentially says to him look you know you always complain the bosses say you are at the bottom of the heap that me- you know you dirty mexican you mm-hmm. don't get to speak mm-hmm. you don't get to to say anything about your life you do what we tell you to do or else it'll be even worse for you and she says you know we you treat me the way your bosses treat you. Right. We didn't know then that we had won the strike. But our hearts were full. And when Ramon said... Thanks, sisters and brothers. Esperanza, thank you for your dignity. You were right. Together, we can push everything up with us as we go. Then I knew we had won something they could never take away. Something I could leave to my children, and they, the salt of the earth, would inherit it. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? That's our show. Our final song is Lena Horne's rendition of Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. Horn was an African-American singer, dancer, actress, and civil rights activist, also blacklisted as a communist sympathizer and staunch integrationist. And it probably didn't help that she was a good friend of Paul Robeson. Thanks to Joan Hawkins for resurrecting Salt of the Earth with us. Labor is a common ground for so many of us. What keeps us apart? Whose interests are served by racism, by the color line? And men, 
wake up to the false construct of the division of labor in the family. Next time on Interchange, we'll begin a three-part series on guns, a targeted divide. We'll look at how guns might be substitutions for failing economic masculinity. We'll talk about the after-effects of being a gunshot victim. So many more people live with these wounds than die of them. And we'll talk about the law, from the Second Amendment stepping on the first up to the 2008 Supreme Court decision, which finally codified the right of all citizens to own firearms. A targeted divide, an interchange series on guns in the U.S., begins next week. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produced, edited, and mixed today's program. Rob Schoon is assistant producer. Wes Martin is our executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Well, they answer, my friend, it's blowing in the wind. They answer, it's blowing in the wind.